This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. With the recent release of Crimes of the Future, we decided it was the perfect opportunity to look back at the Canadian maestro of body horror, David Cronenberg. The Toronto-born director made his name mixing science fiction, social satire, and nightmare fuel to create a genre that is so synonymous with that you can't talk about body horror without acknowledging the grandfather of it. Starting with his first feature in 1960 called Stereo, he made horror films that plumbed the dark recesses of society, slowly growing in stature and cult popularity. Early films like Shivers, The Brood, and Scanners paved the way for bigger budgets and household names to come aboard for the likes of Videodrome, Dead Ringers, and Naked Lunch. His foray into larger budgeted films led to hits like The Dead Zone and The Fly. He got to the point where he could make some truly experimental films, continually attracting Hollywood talent. He slowly started veering away from body horror as he made more accessible films like Eastern Promises, A Dangerous Method, and Maps of the Stars. His latest film, Crimes of the Future, or as Rachel keeps calling it, Days of Future Past, was his first feature film in eight years <laughs> and a resounding return to the genre he helped shape. Mainstream critics have always been divided on Cronenberg's work, but all things considering, Crimes of the Future is some of the best of the day reviews he's gotten in his career. I want to welcome to the show to discuss Cronenberg's legacy with body horror, Alicia Mughal, who is a writer, journalist, and whose work can be found in Exclaim, Film Days, The Globe and Mail, and more. Welcome, Alicia. How are you? I am well. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm, I'm so happy that we finally get you on this show. Um, I heard that uh, you were kind of interested in doing some film podcasting, and, and Rachel, you work with her sometimes, so it was nice that we can kind of all connect and finally talk about a subject that uh, I know you're a fan of. I genuinely am so excited to be here, and yeah, Cronenberg is a like one of my all-time favorites so this is like a dream come true so wow thank you for making my dream come true (laughs) (laughs) i always love when we can find a subject matter or a movie or whatever it is and just have like the perfect guess where it's something that they're a fan of they're knowledgeable about all those great things come together and just makes a fun discussion as opposed to someone who it's sort of a bit like pulling teeth which i was a little bit worried about myself talking about the subject as rachel and (laughs) listeners of the show know horror i'm a bit picky on and so me deciding to do a deep dive onto Cronenberg was definitely a bit of a, a scary thought for me. So having two people like the two of you come on, Rachel obviously is always here, uh, to discuss something like horror and body horror was uh, was a bit more helpful for me to do it. So I appreciate that uh, you're on, Alicia. No worries. Can I ask, why do you not like or why are you picky about it? Uh, I didn't grow up watching horror movies. So, you know, most kids usually start you know, watching the PG-13 horror movies when they're like 12, 13, 14, you know, whether like at birthday parties or things like that. I never really did. My family didn't watch horror movies. And so the few times I was exposed to them, I wasn't really a fan of. So like going to like, I remember going to parties when I was very young, like friends' birthday parties and watching stuff like uh, The First Saw or Jeepers Creepers or Final Destination movies. And they were just so foreign to me. It just like freaked me out and I couldn't sleep or like seeing the ring trailer on TV late and I just meant like goodbye sleep for that night sort of thing. So I never really got the chance to acclimatize to it. And it wasn't until much later in my adulthood, I'm in my early thirties now. So it wasn't until my late twenties that I like, I started dipping my toes into like the classic universal monster movies. I really like the Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, Oh, I really like the aesthetic and all this sort of stuff going on with them. And then slowly I've been able to like work my way up 
to different kinds of movies. I really like psychological thrillers and stuff like that, which I know a lot of horror fans won't always classify as horror. Stuff like, you know, Silence of the Lambs or Zodiac or, or movies like that where there's an element of horror, but that's not the real thing. I'm still not a big fan of like pure slasher movies or things like that. So I I, I don't know what it is, but uh, I, I'm slowly getting better. I think Rachel... I, maybe my, my reputation precedes me a little bit because I'll, I'll talk about not liking horror and then Rachel will be like, oh yeah, in this movie. I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen that one. And Rachel will be surprised every time I say I've seen it. I think the most recent one was Possessor, I believe, right, Rachel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would think though, somebody made the point to me, it was like, because I always say like, oh, I don't like rom-coms, but then I can list off True. Uh, like a decent amount of rom-coms mm-hmm. that I think are great. And like, I would sit down and watch them and watch them again. Yes. And I think it's not necessarily the genre. It's more just like, there are a lot of shitty horror movies out there and there are a lot of shitty rom- there's a lot of shitty movies in general right <laughs> and i think if you're not it, like it's more about the movie or whatever so it's like i think if there's a good story and if there's good you know not just jump scares for the sake of jump scares then i think that you mm-hmm. appreciate it more like something like the possessor which i was surprised you watched that but um like it's good like it's actually it's like a, just a genuinely good movie regardless of the genre mm-hmm. so i yeah somebody said that to me recently or not recently but like a, a little while ago about um, rom-coms because I was just saying I didn't like it and they're like no you do you just like you don't like bad movies you, yeah you don't know you don't call the good ones rom-coms for some reason it's exactly. like rom-com is a derogatory yeah. term you like good uh relationship stories things like that yeah and it's like <laughs> I mean like even something that's like super you know like I don't know why we're talking about rom-coms it's like my best friend's wedding or something like that it's like yeah it's not the greatest movie in the world but it's a good movie and it's enjoyable and that's a fairly rom-com-y Mm-hmm. like especially for that era kind of thing so it's not necessarily you don't like the genre it's just yeah i was actually you know, just listening to like it, yeah. uh classic movies live uh, one of their older episodes when they're kicking it with kendrick episodes about uh mr right and they were talking about that phenomenon about uh rom-coms being a derogatory word and it was just such an enlightening conversation so i'll uh, check that That's one out if you haven't listened to it um but yeah, let's get let's get back to to horror. Does that make sense, Alicia? Like, were you exposed to to horror as as like a child? Is that is that like the the reason why people are okay watching horror movies and scary things? I think I really do think so because I grew up in a household where um, I think I talked to Rachel Rachel about this a few like a week ago where um, we had movie nights every Friday night and we would go to Blockbuster and my mom is like she's always really loved horror. Um, she. Every every weekend, she would be like, "Let's go find the scariest movie that we can find." And oh, eventually, gosh. at Blockbuster, we moved through all like the mainstream um, or like the big budget horrors, like mm-hmm. the others and stuff like that. And then we started moving into like the more niche or like the more grotesque or body horror stuff that children should not be watching. And <laughs> we watched them as a family. I remember this one time, I, I literally had to ask my dad, "Like, can you pause it for a bit?" Because it got so intense. And I think after a certain point, I just got really desensitized to it. And so I'm always, I kind of, one of my meters to judge a good horror film by is whether it makes me scream. And mm. I did, I this, this year, I only had one instance of that. And it was with um, a South by Southwest um, de- movie called Deadstream. And like the horror, it was like, it was like a, a campy little comedy horror thing. But there was a moment in it where I just, I yelped. And I was like, <laughs> this is a good movie. Interesting. It's new. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there is some sort of like psychology studies about why people that are horror movie fans what drew them to it and and why. 
I'm sure someone's done their thesis on something like that because it really does sort of seem like you need to you, you it's just something you need to slowly be acclimatized to. You can't just like plop someone in front of and be like, "Here, this is a really scary movie. You're going to hate it, but at the end of it, you're going to love it." Do you find though, Dakota, like you said, you know, you, you're not a big fan. It's, it sounds more like the slashery kind of jumpy mm-hmm. stuff, but like do you find body horror to be like a completely different type where it is almost in a, it's almost oddly easier to get into body horror than like kind of more pure horror movies yeah i i I feel like i'm going to talk about this a little bit especially with david cronenberg you know i I don't want to reveal too much of my thoughts on it right now but other than you know people being cut open and things like that his movies aren't that scary otherwise yeah yeah so I, I don't know. I like the the only other body horror movies I think I could safely say I've seen are, are stuff like his son's movie Possessor or uh, Titan. I didn't. I haven't yeah. really seen much other of the genre, so I can't really compare it otherwise. And and I would say Possessor feels like a movie that could have been made by David Cronenberg because it was made by his son. But like like if that was just a new David Cronenberg movie, I would be like, oh yeah, that this fits in with his sort of like milieu, his style, the way he does body horror. Uh, maybe a bit more actiony than David Cronenberg's movies usually are, but then you know he also made Eastern Promises, which has plenty of action. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would I agree know. with that. Though I don't think it's as scary. Like I think that it's it's a different type of scary. It's yeah. more like it just stays with you later. Yes, I have a, a counter uh, to that. I think oh. some of them can genuinely be terrifying. I I always bring up the VHS series um, mm. and. So the most recent VHS one, I think, is like VHS 94. Um, that one came out in October on Shudder. And something that, like, I was going into it expecting to be horrified because body horror has never been, like, um, it's always been the kind of horror that I draw a line at. Um, because one of my biggest fears, we're, we can go into this when we go to Videodrome, but one of my biggest fears is snuff movies. I'm terrified of mm. watching the movie and learning afterwards that it was real. Mm. Um <laughs> And that's why body horror always has that like veneer to it. It's like, um, like this could be you or this could be happening and you don't know about it. And that's why it's always, you know, um, freaked me out. But the thing with VHS 94 was that it was one of the safest horror movies I've ever seen, mostly because mostly body horrors are notorious for like putting their female characters through hell and back and literally like putting them in through the meat grinder. But VHS 94 I don't know if it's spoiling it to say this. I don't think it's not. It's like an anthology. Whatever. You should have seen it. Oh. <laughs> um, but it, it, not a single woman dies in that movie. Like, even though they, like, like literally there's this one character, like in one of the stories, a girl gets um, turned into like a biological weapon. Like parts of her are replaced with like robot um, arms and stuff. And it's harrowing, but it's also like, I wasn't scared because I was like, these girls are, they're gonna they're they're gonna be the final girls. I know this. Like they're gonna be safe. The male characters, on the other hand, are gonna you know get torn apart, literally cut in half. So that was something that was. I don't know what it means. Maybe it's like I don't like body horror when like I feel threatened. I think that might mm. that might be it. I just realized something about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we can have this therapy session here today. Thank you. A new world opens up. You afraid of a little emotion? They are evolving away from the human path. I think it'll be a revelation. 
might not be quite legal. <laughs> well, uh, I, I guess we'll kind of get back on, on subject a little bit. And the first question I wanted to ask everyone is, what was your introduction to David Cronenberg and sort of what is your history with his filmography? Uh, I, I know Rachel's off the air, but I definitely want her to tell her story about it. But uh, but Alicia, let's start with you. What was the first Cronenberg movie you saw in your sort of overall relationship to his work? Eastern Promises. I mm. I went, I think it was... It was. It might have been a Vincent Castle phase when I was younger. I, I used to go through phases, so I would move through the actor's filmography, and then I came across Eastern Promises. And to this day, it's my comfort movie. I love. I love watching it. There's <laughs> something about it that is stunning and so romantic. And I don't know. I just. I love Viggo Mortensen's character. I feel like he would protect me. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my beginning, and then I. I wanted to see more of Viggo Mortensen because he's stunning. So I watched History of Violence, and and then once I got through that one, I just I started moving through everything else. And yeah, I I really I don't know what what it is about him. It's like an intuitive need that he satisfies. And yeah, that was it. Interesting. So, have you would you say you've seen a good chunk of his filmography overall? I think so. Okay. I also saw that um, that one that I think his son a few years ago did called Antiviral. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a good one. Made you feel sick. <laughs> I've also uh, read his book, Consumed. That also makes you feel sick in a not good way. Like you're teeming with bugs. It's oh. Interesting. Rachel, what about you? Um, I don't actually remember the first Cronenberg movie I saw. I don't know why either. I kind of went into this weird thing in like grade nine of going to blockbuster i think it was blockbuster at the time and just watching a bunch of cronenberg movies i really don't know why i did this or what happened to me um that made me want to do it but i just kind of kept going like like alicia said like i go into phases as well where you're just really into an actor or a director and you just go in and binge the entire you know their entire catalog of work um, and so I just kept working through it. And then the, the funny thing is, though, it's I didn't watch a lot of his body horror stuff. And I think that that's just to do with like how old I am. And, you know, you I ended up watching, you know, more of like existence. I remember very clearly watching that actually when I was young. Um, and although that is, you know, a bit of body horror in it as well. But it was more of his like, you know, 2000s to present stuff, which was less body horror and more actiony like a little bit different like not as much as his stuff anymore too like he was doing like madame butterfly and um those types of movies uh but yeah and then recently because uh i was doing an article for exclaim so i'd like jump back into all of his body horror stuff and some of them i'd seen like a lot of them i had seen but then like something like the fly which was kind of funny that i hadn't seen that one yet considering it's probably his biggest movie um yeah the big one yeah, it's like the big one. For some reason, I just passed over it. And the only thing I can come up with is it was probably always out when I went to Blockbuster. And so somebody had already, somebody else in Pickering had been taking it and watching it. <laughs> and I couldn't do it. So I don't know. Um, but yeah, and I like the funny thing to me is Cosmopolis was actually the one that, of all of his movies, it's the one I've seen the most. And I don't even know why, because I find it to be one of the most pretentious things in the world. But I can't stop watching it. Like I keep watching it and like or i'll see it on or something and i'll just i'll just watch the rest of it or like i i think the other day i was trying to find a clip from it for something i just wanted to like get a quote from it and like i jumped into the and then i just ended up watching the whole movie and i was like 
this is this dumb movie. Like I don't like it, but I love it at the same time. It's very complicated feelings I have with David Cronenberg. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't seen Cosmopolis, so I can't talk to that one, but uh, my introduction sort of much like Alicia was a bit later. I started with a history of violence. I remember when it came out, uh, it was because it was around the heels of the the Lord of the Rings time. And so Viggo Mortensen was sort mm. of like the, the hot actor at the time, but he was still very picky and choosy about what projects he was choosing. He wasn't appearing in a lot of movies. He, he really never has. He's always seems like an actor who can kind of take it or leave it with this career, which is so interesting. So I watched it and, and really liked it. And the, you know, this that movie isn't really a body horror, but there is the the sort of one dream sequence that there's like a chest exploding sort of thing, which is I guess sort of classic Cronenberg style, and that kind of really weirded me out at the time. And I can't remember when, when did that movie come out. It came out in 2005, so yeah, it was it would have been a couple of years after uh, Return of the King came out. And then I saw Eastern Promises also when that came out and really loved it. It's, it's to my day, much like you, Alicia, probably my favorite one as well. I really, I really like, it. I wouldn't call it a comfort film, but, uh, <laughs> it's, it's still a very, very good movie. Uh, and then other than I think last year I watched A Dangerous Method. Those were the only Cronenberg movies I'd seen up until deciding, uh, with Crimes of the Future coming out to kind of revisit stuff. And we've been laughed at a couple times, Rachel, you and I, for saying that we hadn't seen The Fly. And so I think this was like a really good opportunity to just fix some blind spots. So uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time watching his movies. And it's so interesting because I'll I'll finish the movie and be like, I don't know how much I liked it or not, but it was utterly fascinating and gave me lots to think about. And then, you know, the day would go by the next day, the day after, and then you'd still be thinking about it. And, And really, if that's sort of not a hallmark of a good movie, then then I don't really know what is because there's so many movies that like you're, you watch in the moment and like I, we we're talking about this off air, but I use Letterboxd pretty religiously and I'll go back and look at movies and be like, I rated this movie four stars. I can't remember a single thing about this movie. What's going <laughs> on with me? And then other movies I'll look at and be like, I gave it a two and a half and I still think about to this day. I'm like, well, then clearly it's much better than a two and a half star movie. And kind of goes with what you were saying, Alicia, about putting a, you know, an empirical number on something of whether or not that's a good thing to do or not. And maybe it's not. But yeah, so I've, I've, I've really been thinking a lot about his works. And so it's just so interesting how they can really live with you. So I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's sort of my history with him. I like, like Cronenberg. I think that that's for me, like you hit the nail on the head there. Like that's my favorite thing about his movies is that they're not necessarily like some of them. I think his earlier work in particular, it's more like shock value stuff, Mm -hmm. but the majority of his stuff is, is very, um, it's just more thought provoking and it sits with you versus, you know, you might get scared while you're watching, I don't know, scream, not to, begrudge scream because i love scream but like you, you get scared in the moment and then you know you might forget about it later scream wasn't a good example because you won't forget about scream but you know like there's like there's, there's certain horror movies that you might watch and you just go yeah it's like it, you liked it in the moment because it, it did something to you immediately but cronenberg's movies have a i think a longer shelf life um especially concern i mean like 1986 we're talking what 35 36 years ago now um and you know, that movie, we both saw it for the first time recently and it's like, we both loved it, right? Like mm-hmm. spoiler alert, we both really enjoyed it. So <laughs> like, it's just one of those, like the, the movie, his movies are, are fairly timeless in a way, which you kind of wouldn't expect for 
that genre. Like you don't really think that that genre can be timeless, but he somehow does it. I think yeah. a lot of it might have to do with just uh, his infusion of um, like genuinely like academically philosophical ideas into his work. Something I mm-hmm. wanted to bring up that um, a fun fact that I'd like to tell people, um, we went to the same, Cronenberg uh, and I went to the same college at U of T and oh. there used to be this short story contest that university college at U of T would run and he submitted a short story to it and won that contest. So while I was at U of T, like my, it was my dream to win as well. I never did because you can't be Cronenberg. But, um, and a lot of it, like, I don't know, just watching a lot of his movies just reminds me of being an undergrad and like grappling with these ideas. And I, I feel like this is going to sound like a diss, but like, it, it, I don't mean it as a diss. I love him. It, um, it's like very, uh, uh, I guess, intro to philosophy courses, movies. Um, mm. But in like in a good way and in a in a very approachable and palatable palatable way and get it gets people to thinking about ideas that they I don't know that are fun and interesting to think about which is why philosophers have been grappling with them for years hundreds and thousands of years so I really I really appreciate him for that. It's I I I like what you're saying there because if if you're describing that to to anyone and talking about the films it could be a bit reductive you know oh it's just mm-hmm. like an intro course you know you're 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 just sort of scratching the surface you're not really getting any deeper with it but i think with him because his themes and explorations despite you know being a little intro level have enough meaning behind it that if you want to delve deeper into it you have that ability to sort of jump into the deep end of that subject yes other filmmakers would probably just stop and i think that almost leads like kind of lends to what i was saying about like the timelessness of his movies because he isn't prescriptive about like he's not explaining oh this is what that means he like kind of just introduces some concepts and then lets you take it away and think of it however which is you know i mean i'm not a philosophy person but it's like to me that would seem to me the goal of philosophy which is you know, you give somebody concepts and then you let them run with it and let them think there is no right or wrong. And sometimes I think some filmmakers are very like, this is what it means. And this is like, this is the only way to think of it. And this is right. And then anything, any other interpretation is wrong. Whereas Cronenberg is very much like, it's your interpretation. That's the, like, this is what this movie is. I've introduced it to you. You take it and run with it and do with it what you want. And that's exactly why I did not like Crimes of the Future because it was, it was way too <laughs> in your face about everything. And I, I keep on thinking back to Crash, and it's like Crash was like kind of weirdly morally ambiguous, but mm-hmm. Crimes of the Future to me had a very definite moral compass, and it seemed very unlike Cronenberg. Cronenberg, but that's uh, that's just my opinion. I wonder if a lot of his movies are based on books, and Crimes of the Future is one of his few completely original screenplays. Do you think that plays into it? Mm, that's a good that's point. A good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. Because if you look at like The Fly is is a remake of a movie, yeah. uh, Crash is based on a book, I believe History of Violence is based on a book, uh, Naked Lunch is obviously based on a book, mm-hmm. a few other ones, uh, Dangerous Methods based on real people. So you, you can kind of go through his career and realize that a lot of them is based on, on previous sources. Hmm, that's a really, really good point. Maybe maybe we give, are, are you saying we give Cronenberg too much credit? Okay. <laughs> I don't know, but there's there's obviously something to being able to adapt to a, a book or a previous a different yeah. source to a movie, and and he seems to sort of take pleasure in 
adapting unadaptable books. Both both Naked Lunch and Crash are are books that a lot of people were like, you can't make this into a movie. And he's sort of mm-hmm. like, watch me. I'm going to do it. It's going to be great. But then what about Videodrome? Was that also based on a book? Videodrome's uh, his, I, I think. Because I yeah, loved Videodrome. And I would, I would hold that up as an example that he can definitely do something that's deeply philosophical, but also like morally, you know, un- like icky. Because that movie is like, I, that was, I think, uh, my favorite of all the re- rewatches. Um, Videodrome, A plus. Yeah, I really like. And I think it's an original. I don't know. You know, it was a, it was a pretty half baked, half baked theory I just had there. It was just something that sort of stood out uh, comparatively uh, because Crimes of the Future is very much like an original movie by David Cronenberg, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, no, I, I I do think it's a very good point though, and like yeah. I mean, it's not easy to adapt. It's not, it's not easy to write your own script. It's not easy to adapt to other people's work. Like I think one of the things I like about Cronenberg though is like even if it's not his own he's able to put like his own fingerprint on it. Like maybe the reason his stuff works is because he does try to, to get the unadaptable movie or, or sorry, the unadaptable source work. And because it seems unadaptable, like he can just kind of go crazy with it. Maybe that's why it works so well. He should have done Dune. That, that would, would be, that would have been fun. very interesting. Right. A Cronenberg Dune. That'd be great. It would probably be closer to David Lynch's Dune. Yeah. (laughs) Probably, probably, actually. Weirdly interesting. Uh, but yeah, so today's episode won't be a full-on review of Crimes of the Future, but we will be talking about it, uh, doing our best to sort of avoid spoilers since it is such a new movie. We're going to mainly focus on talking about three films, and they are The Fly, Naked Lunch, and Videodrome, in relation to the ways that they utilize body horror to advance their stories. The Fly is more of a straightforward sci-fi flick, whereas Naked Lunch takes a period piece biopic and turns it on its head, and Videodrome, while having a contemporary setting, makes use of futuristic ideas to give life to hallucinations. Let's start with Cronenberg's biggest hit of his career with The Fly, which is now 36 years old. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yep, they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. Does its allegory for disease still hold up? Uh, Rachel, you recently watched this for the first time, so let's start with you. Um, I found it really interesting that he has was very specific about saying like it wasn't um, about anything to do with AIDS mm-hmm. because when you watch it, it does seem very much you know very much yeah. it, it's very and, and and the time that it came out like 1986, that's right at the peak of when um, the AIDS epidemic. Uh, was happening so like I I do find it interesting that he was like very no like I I can understand why people would read that into it but that wasn't his intention Um, but I mean like it's to me it wasn't so much about disease almost even though obviously that's a heavy theme in it It it's it's more what I took from it anyways was more about you know our fascination and kind of desperation as humans to not age to not to be so afraid of aging and of changing of like our bodies are good like our physical bodies will fail us at one point if they haven't already um and that we are actually quite 
weak. Like our, you know, even though we think that we're at the top of the food chain, like physically speaking, our bodies are very, you know, very, very uh, persnickety little, little organisms. <laughs> and um, a lot can like in, in an instant, like our lives could change by, you know, physical changes. And I, I think that that for me, that's what I always took away from the movie was, was it was more about, um, I say always since last Sunday. Um, it's, <laughs> it was, it's, it's the movie that like, I, I just thought of it as, as a sign about aging and how we're so terrified of it and that we will go through such great lengths to stop the aging process. Um, whether it's a more superficial thing of, you know, looking at the cosmetics industry or, you know, something a bit more, you know, people taking vitamins every day and like all like all these different fad diets that come out and stuff like that. It's like, we're always just terrified of our bodies letting our, letting us down. And that's why I took from it. Not so much disease, which I know was the kind of like the impetus for the film. Mm-hmm. What about you, Rachel? Oh, sorry, Alicia. Um, like I said, my knowledge of this movie is very, very fuzzy. So I'm not, I'm not sure if I will be able to say very many intelligent things, but I do want to, I, I do have this thesis about like quintessential Cronenberg where uh, like the kind of thread running through all of his movies is that bodies hold secrets um, from the mind. And it's always, um, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like um, there's this idea of the body being something nefarious and something to be afraid of, and it's easy for it to turn on you. And I feel like that anxiety is what is present in quite a few of his works. Honestly, I kind of feel like that unlocks something for me. Like that, yeah. that's that's such a great way of wording it that it really puts a lot of his movies into perspective. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, it just, I, I it really came to forward for me with um, Videodrome just because I don't know what it was. Like that movie, I loved it so much. It was so creepy. And it, it goes back to like the snuff the whole film too. But um, they just, he, the bedrock of so much of his horror is the ability for a body to be a monstrance and do violence against the mind in part, um, you know, in part, I guess with crash, you see like bodies are able to realize verboten or um, taboo desires that the mind would say, no, I don't want to do this. But because the bodies can, it's like they become these, you know, murky things that um, the status quo would, I guess, want you to, not honor and in that sense that the body holds so much more power than the mind um yeah i think that's that's really fascinating i really like that (laughs) that helps me a lot more i think to understand where he's coming from from his works because you say that and i could see the through line through all of his movies that i've seen now so i would say that the fly is probably as far as i've seen one is one of his most pure horror films because he's you know, adapting a pure horror film, I would say Videodrome kind of is is similar to it as well. Whereas a lot of his other movies are more dramas or thrillers, but this, you know, really is the story about a a man's body betraying him and changing. And I really love the way that subtly the makeup department was able to make Jeff Goldblum, you know, Mm -hmm. transition into this fly character. And, and I, there is, for most of it, I thought it was pretty fantastic and holds up to like still some of the best special effects makeup I've ever seen, you know, slowly getting the lesions on his face and, you know, those creepy long thick hairs coming out of his back and stuff like that it was really d- quite disgusting. And probably one of the most disgusting things was like peeling his nails off, which I don't think there's, there's a more 
disgusting imagery to me than, you know, someone's nails falling off, uh, which is like, uh, sends like shivers down my spine of just how disgusting something like that could be and the sound effects that they used for it. It wasn't really until he like is like almost at full fly. He's got like this rubber suit on that you doesn't move very well. It's kind of awkward that didn't quite work for me. But then when he went to like the full Brundle fly, it went back to working again. <laughs> so it was sort of interesting where it was just that like one specific moment of his transformation transformation that didn't quite work for me, but the rest of it I thought was really fantastic. Would you say Rachel that the, the special effects makeup held up over these 30 plus years? I think it does. And I think that like, it's really fascinating. Like I, I shit on Marvel a lot for having really bad CGI <laughs> considering like how much money and how many resources and talent they have at their disposal. And so when I see something like this, like back in 1986 and it's like, you can do practical effects and I'm sure that there might've been some, I actually, I don't know, like maybe there was no computer um, touch up on it, but it's like, it's, it's incredible to me how well, even the, even like, I, I know what you're talking about with like the, kind of the rubbery suit thing where he does look a little bit more awkward but like I, I don't know it didn't take me out like I was just kind of like yeah like it, it you just take it as part of it but I, I I was really impressed how well that the the um the practical effects hold up because you know that if they did it today it probably would look worse like somehow like because it would just be entirely probably on computer and mm-hmm. it just wouldn't look as good and I find that really interesting that like I I particularly like the I didn't like it, but like with the, um, when his teeth fall out, like oh, you have yeah. the fingernail thing for me, it was the teeth falling out. Like I, I was so creeped out by that. And this idea of, I don't know, I, I, maybe I have like a fear of like biting into something and then all my teeth just like gently fall out. I think that's what's, the thing too. What's that dream? Yeah, Cause I know people that dream about losing their teeth. It means something, yeah, some, something to do with money. I think something. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. That makes sense for me. Um, but <laughs> let's be honest. Um, but yeah, it's like it's I I think because usually when we think of people losing their teeth, it's like a very like a horrific thing. Like you're getting your teeth pulled out and it hurts, mm. right? Yeah. But in this one, it's like it's just so loosely just kind of pops out. Like same with yeah. the fingernails, right? Like it just comes yeah. out so so effortlessly and, and there's no pain and he just kind of like, you know, as he's becoming Brundlefly, like he takes it and he looks at it and he's just like, Oh well, okay, like yeah. this happened and moving on and kind of thing. Like so yeah, I, I think the effects though are are pretty amazing. And like the when he was on the um the ceiling as well, like when he's he's clipping up on the mm. ceiling. It I was looking a bit into that, like how they did that. And it kind of sounds almost like how they did the uh um inception, like the zero yeah, gravity. The, the fight, rotating is, room. Yeah, it's like it sounds like they did something maybe not as sophisticated as what was done in Inception, but something quite close to that, which I found really interesting as well. And like I, I love movies that do practical effects and like it's becoming less and less obviously but i just find it more interesting like it's it's on screen i do think it makes a difference and i know that the amount of effort and money it takes to do those maybe it is more worthwhile just to do it on computer today but i like the like the behind the scenes aspect of that of just like how did you make this how did you create this shot Um, and i think the fly is is brilliant at that like when he is when his like the outer human shell comes like crumbling down and just like in oh, chunks yeah, of really good. flesh like that's gnarly but like it's so cool like it's really really well done i loved it i recently watched the original thing too and that's from the mm. similar era and just like yeah. watching these two movies in, in short succession it's just like i really miss practical effects in movies yeah. they're so much better 
I mean, I haven't seen the new Jurassic Park yet, but like everyone, like you, the first Jurassic Park, which was what, 93, I think. Yeah, 92. Like they haven't been able to beat that yet. You know, like they no. still haven't made anything that looks as good as what happened in 1993, which is insane to think about. Yeah. Like with all the technology we have in front of us, it still was better when it was just practical. And I like, mm-hmm. and I think the fly is like such a good example of that. Overall, I would say though, the horror, the body horror aspect, I think is really element to this in relation to the rest of his work. You know, we, we I can't really make a one-to-one comparison between the flying crimes of the future because, you know, the fly is about uh, a person's body um, changing against their will, whereas crimes of the future very much is choosing to augment and change your body. But there's still sort of elements, I think, that are a, a bit of a, a similarity. Would you Would you agree with that statement or is this just kind of grasping at, at, at loose straws here? I think a lot of the bodily change in Crimes of the Future was, um, especially with the ability to eat, um, like everybody needed those weird funky chairs to be able to digest food. A lot of it was fear of the body doing stuff that you did not want them to do, which is why I guess like that cataloging thing that Kristen Stewart and the other guy, um, they were doing, they were like cataloging organs. Um, so I feel like that movie kind of did also harness that energy of, um, bodies going out of our control but also with that um i guess that uh underground group of people they also kind of wanted to harness uh surgery to do good so i feel like it was like a clash of both of um choosing but then also choosing creating opportunities to choose in face of not being able to choose does that make sense yeah very much so i would agree with that i think like i've always looked at body horror as kind of having it has many pillars, but like two kind of central ones, which is you either have body transformation or body mutilation. Um, and those are tend to be the body horror that people go for. And there's uh, different examples of it, like that we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But like, you know, I think the fly is obviously a body transformation. It's about what, you know, the human body becoming something other than human. Whereas Crimes of Future to me is more the mutilation of the body. And then from there, you do get what you're talking about, Alicia, like the permission of it and 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 the desire of like whether it's your own decision to do so or whatnot. Um, and I like that to me is I like I like that Cronenberg kind of does both. Right. Like I like that he explores both sides of, you know, our kind of typical definition of what body horror is. And I think like the fly when you talk about transitioning into a completely different creature and then it even like kind of goes a bit one step further where it's two organic items that melded together and the human body becomes the fly but then in the very like last moments um the telepod like an inanimate object Mm. also falls into it and so it's like it's it's this transformation upon transformation upon transformation and you know and it's for me that that idea was always kind of just to detach humans from our like to think of us more as just like are we just a lump of meat basically like are we just this or like are we something (laughs) more than that and um and when we become something other than what we're comfortable with and something that is a bit strange and something that's a little unknown um that's where our discomfort lies with it uh but yeah i think with the with with crimes of future i think that's more of you know what what alicia was talking about which was you know like permission and and 
consent in many ways, which is also in Videodrome as well, though. There's mm-hmm. kind of that aspect, too. Yeah, I think I think that's a pretty good transition uh, to talk about Videodrome. I know I know all three of us, I think, are pretty itching to talk about this movie. And it's interesting because whereas in something like The Fly or Crimes of the Future, very much of the transformations that are happening, the body horror, is very much real and present. I would say Videodrome is interesting because it seems like a lot of this body horror takes place as hallucinations. Now mm-hmm. you can sort of argue or, or question whether or not towards the end how much of it is actually real and maybe is a little bit more real than it looks but through a good chunk of of the runtime any of these sort of body horror elements are, are pure hallucinations experienced mostly by the james woods character and so that's really interesting sort of these forced hallucinations are put upon them these people and and what it does to them um i'll let either one of you who to sort of take the lead of what you think of the the body horror of Videodrome and comparing it to sort of his, his work and how it stands up. What really stuck with me was the idea that the film was trying to, I think one of the film's theses was that um, it doesn't, it do, I don't think Cronenberg particularly is, or maybe that's the idea he's trying to further, it doesn't matter whether something is a hallucination or not, as long as it's felt by the mind, then it's real. Like, I feel like that's one of the things that, the ideas that he was, uh, one of that oblivion character was trying to further uh, with the TVs. Um, like one of the f- most fascinating aspects that I wish that they worked on played out more, but that's just like a little wish I have was that idea of like, it was kind of like a shelter for the unhoused people where instead of giving, like they did give them food, but they gave them rooms to watch TV in. And that whole idea of if you lose the ability to watch TV or to stimulate your mind in that way, then you fall out of the, um, normal way of things you fall out of society and it just i think the movie doesn't really care to give you a definitive answer as to whether uh, the hallucinations were real real or not because it might as well be because i I think scientifically also it's true that um if you tell your mind something because our minds are very literal they believe it so that's i think the idea that the movie was playing with too was um even if it's not happening to james woods's character um in real life the brain sees it as real it feels that pain it feels you know the mutilation and the anguish and the fear regardless and i wonder what that says about us as audiences watching all this horror take place do we also feel it <laughs> yeah yeah no kidding I really like that. Alicia. I like I like that. I mean, it reminded me of like a Seinfeld thing when like George says it it's not a lie if you don't if you believe it to be true exactly. kind of thing. Yeah. But it but it's true. It's like it's 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 kind of, you know, when you know when people say, "Oh, like I'm I'm sorry if I offended you," you know, like that really backhanded apology type thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas like even if you didn't intend it, well, the fact is is you feel what you feel and you see what you see and and this and that and that and that's really interesting especially you know with the big i mean the big kind of body horror piece in in the, is the big abdomen split yeah. down um the uh, woods's character max wren and you know i always found it interesting like when they're putting the betamax tape inside and that felt like such a violation of him like and and you know i it's and even though it's like, it's, so it's interesting what you're saying, Alicia, in like in the sense of maybe that didn't happen. Like, obviously, like if we take it as a realistic thing, a Betamax player did not get shoved into this man's abdomen like that. You know, if, if we're living in the real world, that doesn't happen. However, that feeling of the violation that he has from 
you know, the, the tape, the videodrome into him, that is very real. That's what he's feeling. That's what's visceral about it. And then what Cronenberg does of, of making that body slit, that big slit down the center, it just makes it more tangible, more tactile in a way for us to see versus um, like Dakota, we were, I think we were talking about this in the last episode with Locke. It's like that idea of you don't, you don't say it, you show it. Right. Yes. Whereas Locke, you had to say it, but like in this yeah. one, it's like he, he could have said it. Like he could, James Wood's character could be like, Oh, I feel so violated or something like that. Yeah. Hopefully better dialogue than that. But, <laughs> um, and, but in fact, like what Cronenberg does is show it to us in a very yeah. interesting we way. That, anguish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like that to me is, that's why I love Videodrome. I think it's such an interesting movie that you could talk about for ages. Like there's so many different aspects to it. Like I love the idea that Cronenberg was inspired to do this because of city TV, yeah. which is like, I found that so funny because I remember those vid, like those movies on city TV, like late at night and yeah, things like that. So I remember like you could watch on the weekend. Yeah. Like after a certain time period, it flipped and city TV became just this weird channel. And yeah especially for like a young person and it's like i was up late and watching and i'm like what the hell is this like i i'm too young to really process what's happening but i love that cronenberg was so like annoyed with this in a sense and being like this is wrong <laughs> and very ironically considering a lot of his movies like people think are wrong like crash and i mean crimes we can talk about crimes of the future and the future, like later but like you know something like crash which people thought was very indecent and very immoral and this was like yeah. cronenberg back in you know, 90, whatever saying what city TV is doing is wrong. I found that really amusing. Mm-hmm. Which is my yeah. favorite aspect of horror. It, how is especially with like found footage stuff and like cannibal Holocaust and stuff. They always comment on like that, that the TV we're getting already is, is messed up and mm-hmm. people blame t- like movies for messing us up. And it's like, no, this news coverage is so like graphic and gross and like broadcast journalism. It's, like, is it crossing a line? And so what's the difference between the grotesque ray I'm showing you and your daily news intake? That reminds me of Nightcrawler a lot, like the, the kind of the themes mm, in Nightcrawler. Yeah, yeah. What, what's, what's real is more likely to mess you up than any imagined thing, piece of media, whatever you want to call it. But uh, there's something I, I specifically want to get the sort of both of your opinion uh, about and sort of it's this aspect especially both in video drama and crimes of the future i think there's there's two things that are so similar and a, a common trope in horror movies i find is about uh making men uncomfortable so you think about something like alien ha- having a man being forced to give birth to something he doesn't want to give a parasite and then in videodrome you know the the slit in his abdomen you know kind of looks like a vagina and he's being inserted with his tape in there and and it's so violating as you were talking about that rachel and then crimes of the future this bed that um vigo mortensen sleeps in kind of looks like a womb and he's being like engulfed and so and then he gives he's like is born every day because he has a good sleep and it's you know sort of thing so it's just sort of interesting this concept that cronenberg tackles about what does it mean to sort of impose masculinity and femininity and and all these different things and how do you make men uncomfortable by by forcing them to uh face realities that women might have to experience themselves and i would sort of love especially alicia i know a lot of your work is is based on looking through 
film through a, a critical lens of gender, mm-hmm. uh, how you sort of view Cronenberg's work in regards to that as well as a male filmmaker. I think it's wildly feminist. I genuinely, like, I I love the idea that, like, you know, you you can always raise the argument to him that most of his uh, protagonists are, are male. He very rarely works with female protagonists, but, like, uh, in, like, unless they're, like, in, like, a kind of, like, supporting role, like, Karen Knightley and Dangerous Method or, like, um, Naomi Watts. But he puts these characters through, like, a kind of biological hell that women go through every every month or when um you know when they're pregnant or something like so many he's obsessed with the idea of tumors like if you read consumed <laughs> it's all about the like the idea of like a body growing tumors and um videodrome you have that thing where it one of the that guys uh, i forgot what his name was but his body literally explodes when he shoots him it explodes and all there is is just tumors and it just I don't know. I, I I don't know. I don't know if I have a thought that's fully formed to this, but I do. I, I do think it could be argued that he is being very feminist in in his um, in the in the gore he forces foists onto his male characters. I would actually say too. It's he's he's an interesting filmmaker in that if you track chronologically from the beginning of his career to where we end up now, it's. He was criticized a lot for being fairly misogynistic, especially early in his career. And if you've ever seen Shivers or Rabid, um, those movies, I, I watched them. Um, those, I, I think, I can't remember if I've ever seen them before, but they're really uncomfortable to watch now because the amount of violence that he puts on women and sexual violence in particular it's unnerving like the amount of it too. Like, it's not just once. Like I know people were giving the last duel a lot of, tack for you know oh showing a rape scene twice you know but there was a point to that whereas in his earlier work I don't even know if there was really a point to it and it really made me like turn me off of Cronenberg a little bit um because it's just uncomfortable and you're just like like dude why do you hate women so much like what are you what are you doing <laughs> yeah but if you see it like from um like kind of track it throughout like so I'm just trying to find how old is Cronenberg now I think in his seventies. Yeah, so he was born in nineteen forty three, so he's seventy nine now, so he's almost eighty. And it's like he made um so he would have been, say, thirty, thirty some odd, um, thirty, forty years old when he did Shivers and Rabbins. Like I, I don't like I, I don't know him obviously, but it is to say like I don't think he was I think he was maybe maybe he's just a product of his environment and his generation of what it was. But you can see a growth from him that yeah. he does become like you said, more, more feminist and more, um, I mean, I mean, maybe he doesn't want to, to go completely and identify quote unquote identify as a feminist, but it's like, I think he is more aware of, you know, the differences between a man and woman and how violence works differently between men and women and how that can be perceived. And so I think like it's, it's, he's a really interesting director to watch his movies literally from the start of his career to now, because you can really see a progression, particularly in the way that he treats men and women in his films. And, you know, I like, like Alicia said, it would be nice if he had more female protagonists, like I existence as J- Jennifer Jason Lee. And she is the, um, she's the protagonist in that, but like, I, I kind of don't mind it in the sense too. Cause I think if he feels more comfortable showing, having a man be in the protagonist role because right. that's what he's comfortable with directing and writing, whatever, but he's showing it in, it's like almost his way of grappling with 
the differences between men and women and um, the differences in how we're treated in society and things like that. And so I don't mind that in a sense, but I find him really fascinating in that, in the gender aspect of just seeing, seeing his growth and seeing his progression through his career. I totally agree. An A plus point. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Alicia. Yeah. <laughs> I would sort of say the last thing I want to talk about with Videodrome is, you know, we talked about there, there's this concept in the movie where people need to watch TV to sort of feel connected to reality and be nourished. It's basically like a, a soup kitchen, but instead of serving soup, they're serving access to televisions. And while sort of a, a satire of the way TV was looking at the time in the 80s becoming more sensationalist, I would say it's even more prescient today because you could substitute, you know, TV for the internet or social media or things like that. And it would be just as much. So you can like, you know, if you want to use some sort of allegory of instead of an IV drip, you have like a a, a cell phone connected directly into your veins or something like that. And it would basically be the exact same thing that he was doing with Videodrome of showing this need to consume at all times. If you're not consuming media, social media, whatever it is, you are literally, you know, depriving yourself and you may as well just be some, you know, homeless vagrant on the street that doesn't know anything and is completely disconnected from reality. And so it's just sort of an interesting allegory of of how, you know, it started out as a, a way to criticize city TV and <laughs> looks now even more uh, futuristic than it did back in the 80s. Cronenberg's always had, I think, a like a very, he, he's, People always say like, oh, the Simpsons did it first. Like they predict them. Like Cronenberg's predicted yeah. quite a bit of stuff in his movies. And it's funny you talk about like the cell phone being like directly connected to you. Like in the movie Existence, which you haven't seen, right, Dakota? I don't think you've seen No, it. I have not. You should watch that. I think you'd really like it. Um, that is like a video game. Uh, they call it Biopods. And it's like, a, it's like a fleshy kind of console thing that looks like it has nipples on it and stuff like that. And there's like a big, long cord which is a very umbilical cord type thing and it connects into the, the, your lower back into something that looks like an anus I'm just gonna say cronenberg's got a thing for anus looking he things does. And he really does. <laughs> we, we can get into that naked lunch but he really has a thing for like the anus aesthetic which i find fascinating but and it's like that thing connects like the the biopod connects into your body um through this port that they drill into the back of your into your lower back um and so, yeah, I've, I, but like between Existence and Videodrone, I think Cronenberg just had this, I don't know if he he knew it, like he just had this pulse on this idea of like, we're getting really consumed with entertainment, not just any type of entertainment, but like mindless, senseless, you know, you know, very titillating entertainment. And that you could talk now, it's like reality television. And I don't know about you guys, but it's like anytime that I'm doing something, it's like I always need sound around me, whether it's like some random YouTube video or a movie I've seen a million times or just music. Like I always need something happening. Like Mm -hmm. sitting in silence is terrible. And I feel like that's something with our generation and younger and much younger than us are probably have it even worse than we do. Um, And it's, yeah, it's he's, I don't know how he thought of it or maybe it's just a coincidence. And it's one of those things that, you know, like Shakespeare, like years and years later, we read more into it than the the artist ever intended for us to read into it. Um, But he's always been like just on top of, trends that were would come to light you know years later and i also love the idea with that soup the tv soup kitchens is um 
if you if you lose access to the mainstream conversations um, that you get through the culture that you get through TV, you do you genuinely do fall out, and that's so true yeah. today. Like if you lose, um, if you like miss out a week of Twitter, and you come back a week later, you have no idea what people are talking about. You lose <laughs> that vocabulary that you only yeah. get through like the internet or through TV, and the movie really definitely tapped into that. And I just, I love that. I, I love Videodrome. Gosh, it's so good. <laughs> it's a very, I think very a key thing. thing for it working so well is uh, there's a character, the professor, um, who is based on Marshall McLuhan, who is a media critic and who David Cronenberg was a student of Marshall McLuhan when he was at U of T. So it's not surprising that Videodrome is so, it seems like it's so much influenced by McLuhan's work, uh, especially with the access of this TV soup kitchen stuff. Yeah, isn't it McLuhan the guy who said media is the the message? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what his his Or the his medium is the message. Is. The medium is the message, yeah. Yeah, yeah he totally nailed it. I love that character, Oblivion. He's so cool. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Cover your eyes, America. Run for your lives. You're a marked man, Bill. You're just gonna have to leave town. Tourist class, I'm afraid. Thought you were finished with doing weird stuff. I thought I was too, but I guess I'm not. All right, let's move on to the last one we're going to kind of focus on, and that is Naked Lunch. So while The Fly was very much a realistic portrayal of what is happening to someone with body horror and Videodrome is more about the hallucinations. Naked Lunch sort of straddles the line in between both of them. This is very clearly uh, basically a biopic of William S. Burroughs that he wrote himself about himself, uh, about doing so many drugs he hallucinated his entire life. So it's interesting that we get this allegory of doing so much drugs that you hallucinate all this body horror stuff. But in reality, it's still kind of happening, sort of. It's this very, it's this very kind of sort of confusing world if you just try and describe it. But it both seems real and fake in the sense of a hallucination. And it's just sort of interesting how they're kind of able, Cronenberg's able to meld those two worlds together. Is, is that something that you think works for his style because it's so different and unique or is it something that really sort of stands out maybe in a, a way that doesn't work as well? I think it definitely does work with his style and the, I, one of the reasons maybe it did uh, it, it was able to happen so well is because so maybe the, a lot of the dialogue was provided by um, the book I'm not sure but I feel like it really the dialogue is really what um, creates that idea of unreality um, when you have so like it's like kind of like a double speak that so much of the dialogue could hold true for the hallucination world but it also holds true for the real world and so with that kind of like box checked he was able to bring in his um the sets that contained that weird world and the aliens and like the insects um so maybe do you guys think that maybe uh the ease of having like a blueprint with the words created made it easier for him to kind of go crazy with the like the weirdness. I think so. And I think because the words themselves are like they're bonkers. It's a, it's about a guy, you know, and and experimenting with different types of drugs and um or like and and about his addiction to to different types of drugs and 
And so I think like that is, it's almost the perfect, even though it was considered like, as we said at the beginning, um, an unadaptable book. I think it's like a perfect book for him mm-hmm. to, to um, adapt because it is so strange and it is so out there like just on its own the text on its own because you're you're talking about the like the writings of a man whose brain is kind of rotting away and and like going different going sideways because of you know all these different drugs that he's taking and so add on Cronenberg's touch of you know these random creatures and beetles that again have an anus looking thing on them like it's yeah the, the mouth yeah, and like, and and he has like a thing of rubbing gel on these, like, and in existence, they rub gel on the anus-looking thing as well. I'm just, <laughs> it's, it's it's weird. It's weird for one filmmaker to have this much of an obsession. I know, like, Tarantino's got his feet thing, but like, anus-looking things that he's just throwing on different things where <laughs> anuses aren't. It's just it's very strange to me. But yeah, it's like it's that, and then you know. Th- those creatures at the end like that when the the, the centipede thingy is like hanging and and they're milking it and drinking yeah. from it that was the most uncomfortable thing I i've ever it. seen i really it's love so, it those it's great it's great but it's like it was so uncomfortable and because it's uncomfortable is why it was great like it's just it's it's like the it's the ramblings of a madman mixed with the visuals of another madman. Exactly. And somehow yeah. it just works. Mm-hmm. But even it's the strangest movie though. I think Naked Lunch is one of his is one of Cronenberg's weirdest movies. I definitely think it's one of his weirdest movies. Not very accessible. It's not yeah. accessible. Do you guys think it was too long? I, that I I think it I think it was too long for what it could have been. Maybe like. Mm. What's the runtime on it? Two hours almost. Fifteen. Yeah, almost two. Hours. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I think it it's is. one of his longer ones. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's a great point, though, because I think one of the great things about Cronenberg and like I just kind of clocked it, clocked it. That's <laughs> funny. Um, while <laughs> while I was rewatching and watching some new ones, it was most of his movies are like the 90 minute mark. Yeah, which he, I he think does, he's pretty good at being like a tight 90 minutes in out. We're done. Yeah. And it's it works. One, I think 90 minutes is a sweet spot for movies. I think okay. if you do it right, a 90 minute movie is how long a movie should be. Sometimes, mm-hmm. sure, you could take longer. But like, I think 90 is like it's such a good place to be in but for Cronenberg's movies in particular because they are so strange and because they are so um you know gross in their own way and uncomfortable it's like you you really only have to have 90 minutes to feel that and then get out of it as quick as you can otherwise maybe the longer you stay in it the more you normalize it almost and it makes it, it becomes you're a bit numb to it in a way but I agree I think Naked Lunch goes on a little bit longer I would say I thought yeah. Crimes of the Future did too yeah but that might have just been me being <laughs> Not a, oh no! Crimes of the Future is 107 minutes, so it's not that long. It's not as long as this one. <laughs> so that's just that was just me. Um, but yeah, I think Nick, yeah, I think you're right though. I think Naked Lunch does it goes on a little bit too long. But maybe I mean, it's an interesting world too. Like I, yeah. you know, Dakota, you love film noir stuff, so like I, mm-hmm. I'd be curious to know your opinion on how they how they did the noir elements on this oh, movie. The soundtrack, oh, it's so good. Yeah, the soundtrack's really great. Yeah. Yeah. I, this was a bit of a tougher movie for me to sort of get into because it was so confusing. It has its own language Mm -hmm. and something I sort of noticed when rewatching all these Cronenberg movies in such a short succession is his dialogue is kind of hard to hear. It's like a criticism we levy at at Christopher Nolan these days, but that's (laughs) just usually poor mixing. But I find with him, his 
actors usually speak so softly. So I found myself, I don't always do this, but I'll, I'll do it often enough. But I, I found myself having to turn on subtitles for, for every movie that I was able to, to find them for that, that had them just because I couldn't understand what some of the characters were saying. And I feel like I was missing some pretty critical information. And, you know, reading along the dialogue on Naked Lunch, I found myself still just as confused because <laughs> don't really understand what they're talking about half the time, which, you know, maybe is a bit of a, a, a noir trope to begin with, where you're just like, guy, I, I don't know what you're saying here. Can you just explain it without like trying to sound like you're some hip 1920s jazz <laughs> hipster sort of thing? But it's yeah, a lot the, of, yeah, as far as the, the noir acts aspect of it, I did. I did kind of like that, where you never really knew. It, it almost felt like one of those things where you felt like he was a double agent the whole time. You're like, oh, he's playing dumb, but maybe he actually really does know what's going on. So it was sort of interesting to try to track that and try to figure out the mystery at the same time that you're watching uh, the main character played by Peter Weller and trying to figure out. Does he know what's going on or is this all a mystery to him as well too? And I think that's sort of, you know, been explored in other noir films as well. And I like that. So it was just an interesting one. The only thing I didn't really care for is the typewriters. Obviously the the anus thing is a bit weird, but they looked so (laughs) fake, especially when he was typing on it. It just looked like he was typing on a piece of rubber I have that it didn't quite work for me. I have a theory about, we talked about uh, Cronenberg's special effects, but one of these theories that I've been kind of working with Cronenberg is he does it on purpose where his effects, the gore or like all these other like um, machinist machine things that he does, they always veer eerily toward the campsite. Like, he will always try and do some like I've noticed it, and so like even with something like um, uh, Eastern Promises, the blood is just too red for it to be taken mm. seriously. Everything is just a bit too too much, and I don't know if he does it on purpose, but it always seems it reads more campy to me than uh, the gore that maybe something like I don't know a, a more subtle horror might have. Do you, guys, do, do, you, do you notice what am I just going insane by watching too much of this or is it something you noticed? I think no, so. I, I would agree with you. Yeah, I would too. It almost seems like the point of some of his body horror is it's so over the top yeah. that mm-hmm. it loses its believability. And not in the sense of like I, I I'm taken out of the story. It's just like you can't picture a body doing or doing things like this or looking like this so it it almost helps for me as as we talked about at the beginning not being a a huge horror guy um helps me process it because i'm able to watch and be like okay i i I know this isn't real because it's so over the top it keeps you at a remove in like a safe way yes yeah there's a bit of a distance between the viewer and the in the filmmaker and i think that that's what in a in kind of maybe it's like a bit of a meta thing because I think that that's like that's what body horror does in a way it's like it, it's the idea is to detach you from reality so like when you're transform when a man is transforming into a fly like that is very detached from reality when you have a slit in the middle of your stomach and you're storing guns away and stuff like that like so and maybe that's kind of him just double downing double downing doubling down on <laughs> um doubling down on the idea that you know you you want that disconnect you want you, you we're supposed to have that um gap between 
reality and what he is trying to show as humanity, like different ways of showing humanity. Um, and so I, I, I think he does it on purpose. And like, cause if you see other, like a lot of, like, I mean, even the controller in um, crimes of the future, like it is that kind of squidgy yeah. thing. It felt very naked lunchy. Yeah. And I mean, existence, the biopod that I was talking about, it's the same thing. Like it kind of has that same quality to it where it looks it looks human like, but it's not mm-hmm. at all at the same time. Like it looks organic, but we know, you know, for a fact that it's absolutely not actually real. It just has that quality to it. Um, but I also really like the, the last head the centipede head that was on the typewriter. I thought he was a nice guy, the he little creature. Nice. He seemed, yeah. See, thank you. Alicia. He seemed <laughs> like really nice. Eyes. Yeah. And he was so supportive and just like gave nice advice. I really liked him. And then that maybe that's why I was really upset when it turned into this weird milking farm thing. I was like, Oh, poor guy. Was, uh, did you, it was, it was simultaneously like uh, sucking from a breast, but also getting blowjobs. I loved it. Like, yeah. Double, visual double entendre. He had the blowjobs. He had the anus. Like Cronenberg just trying to tell us something. I think he's really trying to tell us something. I feel like with Cronenberg, uh, someone went up to him like, "Oh man, Cronenberg, uh, David, I, I hear you're an ass man." He goes, "No, no, 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 <laughs> anus man." <laughs> well, no. There's a difference. <laughs> he really is. It's very true. You wouldn't think it, but there is a subtlety there of showing <laughs> anuses throughout all of your movies, or like anus-like things. Um, he also does like vagina like things as well Mm -hmm. Uh, he's yeah he's subtle but not subtle at the same time is he he, (laughs) he's just his imagery is never subtle like it's just right there but the concepts that he does i think like he subtly weaves that in which is interesting for like especially the types of movie he makes like he has a good balance i find through a lot of you know really brash you know gory stuff and then just more quiet concepts that lead that lead that stay with you like that's what we were talking about right at the beginning yeah he's unabashed about his genre-ness like i feel like so many directors are like "Ooh, I'm, i i could i don't i don't like i don't like the uh definedness of genres like he doesn't care like he loves that he's a genre director and i respect that about him it's funny though because he he's like um i was looking stuff up about him and he was saying how the term body horror he's just like uh, some journalist came up with that like so whereas i think like what you're saying is true Alicia, like he doesn't care that he is a genre um filmmaker like he likes working in that and he he you know and he's obviously explored other things as well but even in his like action movies he still manages to put in body horror elements into them mm-hmm. so clearly he likes working in that space but i think that what he maybe doesn't so much enjoy is like the confines of saying like, Oh, this is what body horror is. Like he doesn't like that label of it, um, but he doesn't mind working within it at the same time. Cause like clearly if he did, then he would have, well, he kind of did stop for a little while. He did (laughs) stop in a, in a sense, like for about almost like 20 years, like he didn't make a a Mm -hmm. pure body horror movie for since I think existence might've been the last one. And then, yeah, no, did crash come after that? I can't remember. No crash was, 96 i think crash was 96 yeah existence is 96 and existence is 99 so it's like existence is kind of the last one that he does which is i would consider a more pure body horror and then he goes off and does some other stuff again still incorporating things and then crimes of the future but he also didn't work as much in from 2000 to to 2022 like he wasn't working nearly as much as he had when he was younger um Mm -hmm. 
and then Crimes of the Future comes in, and that it, like this is a very pure body horror movie, regardless of how we feel about it. It's just like it is a very very, um, it's back to like his roots in yeah. a way. I know he's had trouble uh, getting financing, and I wonder if, you know, A History of Violence got Ed Harris an Oscar nomination, and Easter Promises was also a, a pretty big hit relative to its, you know, budget size and things like that. But I think that afterwards, the three movies they followed up with, A Dangerous Method, Cosmopolis, and Maps of the Stars, all did pretty middling. You know, mm-hmm. they, they didn't do well at the box office. None of them really got great reviews. Uh, and I think... You know, he, he's talked about having trouble getting financing. I think it was just those three movies in a row that was just like, you're not bringing in the money anymore, so we're not going to give you the money. And I think it maybe took him being like, hey, I'm making a movie like my roots. I'm making a movie like The Fly and Videodrome and Naked Lunch that I think my audience will be able to uh, understand and accept. And I think that's why it's kind of been more of a more of a hit, if you want to call it that. I know it still hasn't done great at the box office. But relative to his earlier ones, I, I haven't I haven't seen a David Cronenberg movie talked about right. like this yeah. in my time. That's, it was true. Do you yeah. think that, that the media campaign was so aggressive because of that? Because he wanted to bring in the money to show maybe the people that he could? Maybe. I'd also take into consideration that we're in Canada. And um, right. I think it, it the what we're seeing, in particular Alicia and I, like in Toronto specifically, um, like it's his movies are going to make a big are going to be a big deal here. Like they had that huge premiere um, downtown with a cute, like the, I think he would Vigo was there as well, I think. And they went to Montreal too. Cause mm-hmm. I saw a picture. Yeah, I think, I think Vigo and Leia were, th- were there as well. Yeah. And it's like, usually when you have a Toronto premiere, let's be honest, not the, the stars of the movie don't typically show up unless, unless you're Keanu Reeves and mm-hmm. Carrie Ann Moss, because they're Canadian as well though. So mm-hmm. they show up for the, the matrix one. And, so for Cronenberg, like to have them, like they made it like a really, really big thing. Cause I think the Toronto premiere was the first one after Cannes, wasn't it? I think Cannes. And then this was kind of like their non-festival um, premiere for the movie. And yeah, I just, I feel like maybe, maybe it's because we're in Canada and that's why it, it makes it seem bigger, but I would agree. I've, we've never really seen a bigger opening, but also Cronenberg's movies to me, he's never been like a box office. Like he's not a, a, director i look at and go like oh yeah he, he's brought in a lot of money um his movies aren't really like that even though some of his movies have done very very well mind you um but i've like he's not a box office draw maybe now he is because of like the legacy that he's built up but i wouldn't necessarily think of him as like like chris nolan where it's like you're expecting hundreds of millions of dollars being rolled in for one movie I'm pulling up how much money this is made because i i saw the opening weekend numbers and they weren't it didn't do that well. Yeah, it only made one million in its opening weekend. So, yeah. and so far worldwide, it's made two million. So it's not like it's it's really done a lot. It's only been out for uh, one full week. It came it's also limited third. release too. Like it's not released everywhere. It's like I think it's only the major cities that got it. I don't even know how many cities in the states got it, but I think yeah. in Canada it was only like Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. I don't know if anywhere else really got it. And I, I, and I feel like movies like this uh, that get limited releases usually have longer legs because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're an adult, you'd be like, well, you know, I, I'm not going to a movie opening weekend. I don't got time for that. I'll, I'll catch it in a few weeks when, you know, I can get a babysitter or when I'm free or something like that. And so I feel like a movie like this will probably, you know, slowly but surely make its money back through that way. 
I think it, well, and I mean, it got a lot of hype out of Cannes for being the movie. I mean, Alicia and I kind of laughed about this before, but we were both saying like, you know, the, the big story out of Cannes was, oh, all these people walked out of Crimes yeah. of the Future. It was like, it, and everyone was like, oh my God, it's going to be so gory and so gross, like, and, and, and just really uncomfortable. And then you go and watch, and like, that was one of the reasons too, Dakota, you didn't want to watch it in theater because you wanted to, yeah. you, you were a bit hesitant to watch it in theater. And so, um, but then you watch it and you're just like, oh, it's not, yeah, it's fine. It's, fine. <laughs> like, it's, it's yeah. actually not, it's not as like, you know, he had a, in, I think it's shivers, like one of his first movies and that's in 75. Like one of the first scenes is him is a character, not him, but a character splitting open, like they cut open a, a young girl's stomach and throws acid into it. Like within um, for scanners, within the first ten minutes, the guy's head blows up, right? Like yeah. so, we've seen gross, like we've seen anuses and things like that, like just really, you know, gnarly things from Cronenberg. And so then, when you get to Crimes of the Future, it really wasn't that. I did, and then it made me kind of think that maybe there's something wrong with me because I was like, I didn't find it that gross. Same, yeah. Oh my gosh, we were gaslit. I, I kind of feel like we were. I kind of feel like we were. I was like, Cronenberg, what are you doing to me? But yeah, I, I didn't find it that thing. And I, I don't know if, you know, now that the reactions are maybe settling down a little bit or a bit more tempered, I don't know if that will affect how it does at the box office going forward. Like, will it, will people be like, oh, actually, it's not as gross as people initially thought it was? I still don't know what happened at Cannes, to be honest. I still find it very odd. Yeah, it was very weird where it it almost feels like a media campaign for the movie. Like, it it was just the most shocking thing I've ever seen. Oh, my God, people are walking out. How dare people watch it? Like, I feel it feels like obviously I'm I'm too young for this, but it feels like, you know, the stuff that was coming out in like the 80s and early 90s of people being so offended by this. This is the this is the most disturbing thing I've ever seen. And like it's people playing Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. You're just like, <laughs> what where where is this coming from? And like, yeah, there's a couple, you know, as someone who who's a little squeamish, there was a couple scenes in Crimes of the Future that I was just like, oh. But like for the most part, you know, when you know Vigo's getting surgery done on him, you know, that that wasn't really that bad. Cause like I said, it's so over the top. You recognize that it's not realistic anymore. Mm-hmm. So, and we've seen this through countless of his movies. We're talking about, we're talking about on fly when he's losing fingernails and teeth. We're talking about it in Videodrome when he's having a VHS forcibly inserted into his stomach and he's, you know, crying in agony. And we're talking about a naked lunch when there's these aliens that are being milked in their weird you know, fluids dripping from them. So it's not like stuff we haven't seen before. So just such a weird thing of looking back now a couple weeks later, a month later, and being like, where was this fuss coming from? I don't get it. Like, have have none of you critics ever seen a Cronenberg movie before? What's going on here? <laughs> I, I talked about this in my Exclaim review for the movie. They, what I'm, I'm convinced that, um, or what it's probably most likely that they were doing is just replicating the reaction to Crash. Whereas um, mm-hmm. with Crash, a lot of it was reactionary. Um, the outrage was reactionary. Here, uh, they turned it into something that was antis- anticipatory so that they could get more people just watching it. Because um, I do I do get it's like probably a concern, especially with COVID, um, you know, theater releases, I don't know. Um, but they definitely were creating that whole thing. Um, and 
I did read Cronenberg's quote from the 90s where he's like, it's very obvious when people do get up from a seat just because they, they rattle quite a bit because they're old seats. <laughs> so I wonder how many of the people who walked out were probably just going to the bathroom and he probably just heard it. Because the movie is like, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's, maybe somebody had to pee. I don't know. People drink water at theaters. <laughs> I also like crash to me. I can understand why people were so outraged by it. Like I do get it. You know, I, I mean, I wasn't personally offended by it, but like I can understand where, it, where it's coming from. And it, it's more of the concepts too. It's not even like there's people are no, more offended by sex than they are by violence. That's true. Yeah. That is that's actually very, very true. Yeah. It was more, more sexually driven than, than, but like, I mean, crimes of the future, it wasn't even, violent necessarily but it is bodily harm so that is yes different yeah that's a good point actually maybe that that's what the difference was yeah i don't i don't know uh one sort of curious thing i want to you know throw out there i don't know if there's an answer to it but you look at other you know similar directors who work you know in you know sub genre filmmaking that is often you know r-rated or worse uh usually doesn't attract the same type of star power that David Cronenberg does. You look at, you know, his history, you've got, you know, very mainstream Hollywood stars being in his film. So most of his career, ever since he sort of made his big breakthrough, uh, Viggo Mortensen's been in a bunch of his movies now, but he's also had people like um, Michael Fassbender and Robert Pattinson and Jude Law, and at the time, James Woods was kind of a big deal, and Peter Weller, and <laughs> James Jeff Goldblum, and all these people. Yeah. So it, it's sort of interesting. Jeremy Irons has been in several of his movies. Ray Fiennes has even been in them. So it's just sort of interesting. Holly, Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter, um, What do you think it is that he's able to attract these very high-profile celebrities to do these small frankly, indie films that are, you know, could be career suicide if the movie was a bomb or something like that, uh, compared to other directors who maybe don't quite do the same thing, but like if they work in that sort of R level field that they just wouldn't be able to get these people on board. I think a bit of it is, um, just, I have no idea, honestly. That's a very good question. Because I did, I read for my research on Crash, uh, James Spader said he agreed to do it because of Cronenberg's uh, like history. Like he'd built up a good, a good, you know, portfolio mm-hmm. of cool movies. But like, let's say he hasn't done that yet, and you're like, uh, I don't know, Jeff Goldblum. Why would you want to sign up to something like this? And I wonder if it has to do with the ideas that the movies maybe grapple with. Because Cronenberg has a very good understanding of how to write like a good amount of like like we talked about he knows how to write good philosophy into scripts without it seeming gimmicky gimmicky so maybe actors appreciate the um meatiness of the roles do you think i have no idea that's not maybe not just schlock yeah yeah i think it's like even though those guys are like really big stars i actually think that they're they're not like you know, they're not like the Tom Cruise or the Brad Pitts or, you know, like today, like the Chris Evans and those guys, like it, it, they're, they're big stars, but they're still stars that do like quirky movies. Like if you look at all of those actors that you named, it's like, they do weird stuff along with the big stuff. Like they've kind of managed to find that kind of the, the great equilibrium that I'm sure every actor would like, which is you can have really big box office stuff like a twilight or whatever and 
you know, Jude Law's done obviously a ton of mainstream stuff, but also you have the other side where you do these really kind of quirky, weird things like small, small movies that, and, and that's what you're more drawn to in a sense, whereas you're not big as like, I think of like George Clooney and Brad Pitt. Like I couldn't see them mm-hmm. doing a movie like Cronenberg because they're a different type of movie star than a Jude Law, um, uh, a Peter Weller. Like they're, they're, they're just different. And so I think it's, it's Cronenberg being able to attract like big names, but those big names are still people who will do, who, who aren't afraid to do the, the funky stuff. Like they're not, and, and they actually would rather do those things. Maybe like if like Pattinson's career has always fascinated me because like he started off incredibly, incredibly mainstream and then just went uh, like a complete pivot and did a lot of really weird smaller movies that you wouldn't necessarily think of that the Twilight guy did. Um, and so I think Cronenberg was really good about attracting those types of people. Like I'm waiting for Mads Mikkelsen to be in a, in a Cronenberg movie. Cause I just like, maybe oh, just, wow, yes, that would be amazing. Like, I feel like that he's, he's exactly the kind of actor that Cronenberg works well with where, you know, and he's also a huge name now. Like Mads is, is um, rightly so like a big, kind of superstar in the movie industry so yeah i i find like it's it is it is big name actors but like these are actors who who kind of look for those types of roles as and, well and i think also he's maybe smart enough to approach actors who he knows are financially comfortable enough to maybe take yeah. a weird um leap in their career like with pattinson he was able to i feel like most much of what afforded him the ability to do the weird stuff was the mainstream success yeah. And same with Kristen Stewart, same with Keira Knightley. Like, I can't imagine, like, she was terrible. I love her to death. She's my all-time favorite actress. But she was terrible in Dangerous Method. Don't know why they put that accent <laughs> on her. I'm so glad she they took it off for Anna Karenina. But that accent was so bad. Um, but she was able to survive it, you know? She's still doing well. She's still insanely rich. Um, yeah. Kira Knightley, yeah. I find interesting because she's made a career out of playing like period pieces. Like that's her thing, right? Like that's what she's very good at doing is the older um, English stuff. And so I find like a dangerous yeah. method was her doing that, but like weird, like a, a weird yeah, version true. of what she's very well known for. And I mean, like, look, it didn't, it didn't really work. She's not. I love Kira Knightley. She's terrible. No, accent. she's not. Her American accent is really so bad. bad. Too. Jacket. It's like I, she's one of those people that I'm like, just stick with the like, kind of like Hugh Grant. It's like just do the British, just do, and you could do different types of British. Like it's fine, like you're you're good, but like actually maybe Kara should just stick with her British because like she would sound weird with like a different British accent. But she's got two distinct. That's the thing because her face is so classy, so she can't really do something, and it's a very British looking face as well, whatever that means. but like I appreciate that she still took that punt, like that she did try something yeah. different because she is very well known for one particular type of movie. So like I appreciate that she did that, but I agree. Like maybe I doubt she would have been able to, or that I doubt that she would have wanted to do something like that earlier in her career. But now that she's got yeah. the money and she's got the name, and you know, one bad movie, one bad performance, not really going to hurt her. And you could say the same for for many of the actors that we, we like Pattinson, you're right. Like it's okay. If he, he, I mean, Twilight wasn't even really received very well and he made a crap ton of money from that. So what does he care now? Um, But yeah. Yeah. I think also maybe looking at, looking at these films a little bit closer of when they were released kind of gives a bit of revealing information too, because Cosmopolis came out literally right before 
Breaking Dawn Part 2 came mm-hmm. out. And so this was Patton's first way of being like i need to i need to ditch the twilight persona he by i know i remember at the time by by the time the last two movies came out he was so sick of of doing them he didn't want to be involved with it and so he was actively searching for weird projects and cosmopolis was the first one that he was able to kind of do and like from his perspective being like yeah i can work with this like crazy canadian director it's going to be a small budget movie not a ton of people the twilight fans aren't going to watch this movie but i'll be able to actually do some real interesting acting work and then I feel like some of the other ones, especially with what Viggo Mortensen's doing, it's sort of a similar thing where both Viggo Mortensen and Michael Fassbender, like you said, Rachel, often choose kind of uh, more outside projects. You know, they're they're very, you know, classically Hollywood handsome, attractive, but they also do these weird, dark stuff. Jude Laws is in the same boat as well. And I remember reading about Crash, how apparently it's quite difficult to cast a lot of them because no one wanted to do this movie except for the people that really wanted to do right. it. Holly Hunter reached out to Cronenberg against her agent's advice and was like, I'll do anything for you. I don't care what it is. And he's like, Hey, what about crash? And she's like, great, let's do it. Um, and then the same he's thing so with you got James Spader in there wasn't the first choice. Yeah. But when he read this script, he's like, Oh sweet. I get to have sex with literally everyone. I'll do this movie. <laughs> and they're perfect. Like the, the, the type of actor James Spader is, and like even his look, like I said, he's a handsome guy, but he's not, yes. you know, like Brad Pitt. You, like you said, Brad Pitt, George Clooney. Yeah, those, those like he's not very like much that. faces. Whereas, and yeah. like Holly Hunter, same thing. Like she's quirky, she's beautiful, and she's quirky. Like mm-hmm. I've always thought Holly Hunter was such like a like an oddball, and I love that about her. And so it's like it works really, really well in 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 the in in that movie in particular. Like having those kind of interesting faces attractive faces but interesting faces and and just kind of bonkers personalities that do come through in it even if like james like it's quite a quiet movie crash like considering yes what it is like it's a very very quiet film but like they pull it off really nicely i i think sort of the last thing i want to talk about here is I, i sort of hinted at the very beginning of the show and it's i don't think cronenberg makes horror movies most of these movies are just psychological dramas Mm -hmm. you know very intense dramas that have you know sections of body horror elements in it of you know this very intense gore and violence and things like that but for the most part it's they're not similar they're like i none of these movies i was really scared by the fly is probably the closest to being like a pure horror movie parts of video drum as well but like i'm they're not scary movies like other scary movies are out there, actual horror movies. So do you find that maybe because so much is based in the drama, based in the personal interpersonal dramas, and that's maybe what's attracting all these Hollywood stars to it. And then they also get to do some kind of interesting effects work, practical effects work. I agree. I a hundred percent agree. Cause yeah. Same. Yeah. I think like, and again, like I, I already kind of talked about like, tracking the progression of Cronenberg's career but it's like if you do look back to his work in the 70s those are more what I would consider to be like pure horror movies you know mm-hmm. and and they and and you can tell and it doesn't feel like Cronenberg in many ways because they feel I personally think really unrefined and they're not sophisticated in the way that we've seen him become later on in his career um and I'm glad they exist like I like that he has movies where they're not I I personally just I like actively just dislike some of his earlier stuff but I like that like he's kind of gone from this 
very blatant horror actor, not actor, uh, director. And then he makes it like he calmed down a little bit and he like, he, he brought it down a bit. He brought other aspects down, but then like he increased the body horror up. So like to kind of create like a, a different balance there. And I think, you know, I mean, I think actors in general, they just want good stories to tell. They want interesting parts, like whether it is, you know, today it's all superhero movies, but like that, like every decade and every generation will have a particular type of movie that Hollywood is churning out mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And so then you have somebody like Cronenberg who does something a little bit different. And I think that that's what's interesting about it. And I, and like, I think you could say the same thing with like Chris Nolan, which is why it, earlier in his career, people wanted to work with Chris Nolan because it was something different. Like Inception was very different for the time um, than what we were getting. And so it's like, if you're an actor and you're all you're seeing is the same types of scripts and because you're a certain type of actor too, like if you're Jude Law, you're getting the same type of movies over and over again. And then all of a sudden you get this kind of weird body horror-esque movie on your desk. It's like that will pique your interest a little bit more. Absolutely. And I also think totally agree with 100% what you said but to add to that I think also I think actors see that what he does is genuinely intelligent it's all very cerebral and it's not like like uh, superhero movies now have like got like an that reputation going for them they're like oh they're too mainstream their dialogue is bloated it's all just you know very black and white ideas Cronenberg is always going to have much more um, just because he does come from that academic background but also like it's just he's a smart guy and he knows what he's doing he knows how to craft a good story he knows how stories work and if i were an actor i would i would go to him because all of his characters are heavy with um a good understanding of how they're built and you know that it'll challenge Mm -hmm. you and it'll be rewarding and hopefully that's what actors look for rewarding work it's funny i feel like a lot of people like us, if think about like, oh, if I was an actor, I would love to do something like David Cronenberg. It's so weird. It's so out there. You get to, you know, not be the good guy or the bad guy. You get to, you get to really dig into what it means to be a, a human and all this sort of weird stuff. And then you also get this fun aspect of playing around with prosthetic work and special effects and all this really cool, interesting stuff. So it's interesting. I've, I've often thought about like directors like Cronenberg being like, man, if I was a professional actor, I would totally love to work with someone like him. It'd be scary though, wouldn't it? I think it would be like, which is part of probably what is the attraction too is like, it's yes. scary to think of like what you're going to be doing, especially if that's not the norm right now. Like if, if you're always doing a certain type of movie in a certain type of way, and then Cronenberg comes in and is like, Hey, we want to do this movie, but it's going to be done in a completely different way. It's like, it's very disarming. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and, and I think, I mean, it's interesting. It takes a certain type of actor, like we've been saying to do it. And most I think will be too cautious to, to want to do it. Like, you know, I, I don't, I feel like in theory, you could say like a Chris Evans would be like, oh, yeah, I'd love to work with Cronenberg, but he probably never would. He's not you know? good. Yeah, he would yeah. not, I don't think. No, I don't think so. Like, can, can you picture Chris Evans in, in Crimes of the Future? Like no. something like that? Um, I can't. Because, you know, he has a resting happy face. I feel he's too happy he looking. <laughs> <laughs> he's not miserable enough looking. Because you got Vigo with that Maybe. But like I I love Chris. I adore Chris Evans. I have a lot of love for the man. He's a beautiful human being. But it's like he okay. he does look like like the frat boy. Like he yeah. has that like all American look. And like Pattinson's a handsome man, but it's it's not in the same type of handsome. It's just different, you know. And so yeah, I, I can't see Chris Evans doing 
that. Although um, okay, Scott so Speedman picture was this in... though. Hang on, uh, Captain America: The First Avenger, <laughs> the scene when uh, he gets into the chamber, and that's when he becomes Captain America. Right. But that sequence directed by Cronenberg. Because doesn't that like chamber sort of look like the chambers, yeah, the yeah. surgery chambers that they have in Crimes of the Future? So instead of him in being injected with a serum, it's David Cronenberg coming in with these like tongs that like open up his abdomen and like put in muscles for him. So I haven't <laughs> seen any of the Marvel movies, but I do know that Captain America holds a shield. And so think Videodrome with the gun fused to his hand. That shield is going to be fused to his hand. Okay, so this would be a fascinating project is Cronenberg does the MCU. So basically we just he redoes every part of the MCU. Yes. It, it's like it's <laughs> he does this, all 30 movies. Yeah, it's this idea is like what you were saying to Code is like okay, so he's in this capsule and Captain and yeah. America is, is get we don't really see it, right? Like it's a it's a what, a couple minutes the scene because you just hear Evans like yeah. oh like no, I can do it. Keep going like it's fine and whatever. Also the capsule yeah. needs to be more vagina like or anus like yes one or the other it has yes. to <laughs> not it's too normal looking in captain america um but i feel like cronenberg would turn that sequence into like a 15 minute thing and like you know um the other it's like wolverine like when wolverine becomes wolverine that would be yeah that would be right up cronenberg street um, well, I think I think Logan did a good job with it did, you know yeah, it the, did. the claws not being able to come out of his hand, and that almost made me puke. I think in a weird macabre sense, Cronenberg is very amenable to horror movies in the sense that, or no, superhero movies. Sorry, in the sense that he's always fast. He's always one of his fascinations has been the idea of machine meets body. So mm-hmm. I feel yeah, like he could true. do like an X Men type thing, maybe like that biological uh, superpower thing. Something to well, look I feel like Cronenberg, if you're listening. <laughs> I feel like if, <laughs> if you're a young person and you read the person that you read, like, and you knew nothing about the fly and you didn't know who Cronenberg was, you didn't know what he was about. Um, and you just kind of read the synopsis of like, you know, man goes into a telepod changer, a telepod teleportation device. And there's, there's a fly in it. And, you know, the two kind of meld, you kind of think it's Spider-Man. Like you think that you're talking the beginnings of Spider-Man basically. And then the movie but obviously turns out to be something completely different. Although I think Cronenberg just did a, a quote basically saying how not so – he didn't go as far as what Scorsese said about superhero movies not being cinema. But he was like, like they're for children and like, well, I don't know why we're yeah. arguing about this. Like that's the whole point is that they are meant to be for kids, um, which is a fair point. Well, my, my joke review of The Fly on Letterboxd was there's stories about how Cronenberg almost directed Return of the Jedi, but this is his MCU movie. Can't wait until this is retconned in due to the multiverse or some shit. You're always good with the comedy, Dakota. <laughs> always good Thank with you. the comedy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think we had a great discussion here talking about body horror and David Cronenberg's history. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much for coming on. I learned so much and and you brought so much. It was a lot of fun. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed it too. I did. I love talking about movies with people who love talking about movies. So this was a dream. Like I said in the beginning, thank you. (laughs) Well, we we can't wait to have you back, but uh, I'm going to link to your review of Crimes of the Future in the show notes. But if people want to find more of your work or follow you on social media, what's the what's the best way to do that? All of my social media is just at Alicia, A-L-I-S-H-A-M-G-L. And yeah, that that's where all I do. Where, that's where I do all my cringe, cringe work. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I will link to that as well so people can can follow you if they want to. 
Rachel, where can people find you and your work? I go to rachelkh.com and my Twitter is underscore rachelkh. To accompany uh, Alicia's review of Crimes of the Future, I did a piece for Exclaim about um, David Cronenberg's work, which should be coming out sometime soon. So you can look out for that as well. Excellent. Hopefully it's out and I can put it in the show notes. Should be. I'll send it to you. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you have seen Crimes of the Future or any other David Cronenberg films, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out.